Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk. I am the hostess, Jana Lopez. And as many of you know that listen to my show on a regular basis, I'm always interviewing the coolest, most interesting, most creative, and most passionate people uh, that dedicate themselves to their art and their expression. And today's guest is no exception. And I have to say, when it comes to passion, probably nothing more than flamenco comes to mind in terms of an art form where I feel like it's nothing but sheer raw passion. So my guest is, I'm going to try to get this right, but we practiced before, a Stephanie Ramirez. <laughs> and she is the artistic director and co-creator of an amazing flamenco uh, school and outreach program and um, performance company that perpetuates and instills and teaches and shares this most amazing art form of flamenco. So please correct your name because I knew, I knew I'd get it wrong. <laughs> and nice to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for thank you for having me. I am Estefania Ramirez, co-director to Entre Flamenco. Um, I share the co-direction with my co-founder, Antonio Granjero, who's the only Spanish director on U.S. soil. And in fact, we do um, we do dedicate our our whole our whole lives and being and energy and efforts to the art of flamenco, the preservation of flamenco, the tradition of flamenco, of how um, how it's taught in Spain here on US soil in Santa Fe. Our nonprofit organization was founded in Texas years ago. And although we operate and reside in Santa Fe, New Mexico, our, our beginnings actually uh, were founded in Madrid in 1998 in between seasons of working with the legendary Maria Benitez. It's always really important to me to to mention that the pioneer to Spanish dance in North America is Maria Benitez. And we were um, fortunate enough to work with her for many years and then were umbrellaed by her nonprofit organization in our beginnings when we first started to operate on our own. And of course now 
we are independent and have our own nonprofit organization, but nonetheless, I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for agreeing. Now, I've had a chance to see you perform a couple of times. And what I want to do is talk about the history of flamenco and a little bit about its origins because it has a fascinating history. Um, and it was surprising when I started digging in. And I started digging in in part because of seeing you perform. I just came as a guest. But I want to say the experience, if, if any of you have never seen flamenco live, it is unbelievable. The fire and the passion and the fury and the form and the precision and the grace and to see all of these elements come together in a short time of dance. I've never experienced anything like that before. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, the art of flamenco and its history is super rich. It dates back to pre-1800 times in Spain. And it's and I'm so I'm thrilled that you you want to talk about this because I think that um, any art form, any any flamenco goer should be aware of how incredibly complex its history is. I mean, not only um, with the evolution of the actual technical aspect and the artistic aspect, but also the socio-political aspect in the background. It's it's a really amazing, an amazing art form. And having lived, I was established in Spain for 14 years and studied, not only did I study the art form and practice as, you know, and was an actual, artist that was established, um, but I also spent time studying at the University of Seville about the history and, and Andalusia in itself where flamenco comes from. So, you know, I think right now it's a really crazy time because there's a lot of new literature coming out about flamenco and I can't say, I, I'm that person, I'm not that stick in the mud, but I have to say that a lot of it, I don't know where people are drawing credentials from, they're just kind of making things up, but the fact is, is that flamenco dates back to pre-1800. There are some gray areas where they're not sure if where some of the, the literary figures that that referred to their sightings and their descriptions of flamenco, if it was flamenco, if it was Andalusian folk song and dance, if it was Escuela Bolera, if it was different types of Spanish dances that already were present in the Andalusian courts being performed for royalty. But nonetheless, um, the flamenco form and art form is influenced by four different groups of people. Um, flamenco is always romanticized by gypsy, gypsy, gypsy. Yes, it has a gypsy influence, but there's also three other influences that are just as important. And I'm not saying more influential and that have shaped, but that need to be recognized um, in, in depth rather than just romanticizing the idea of nomads and gypsies and the Spanish gypsy. So the Spanish gypsy were the, the Beticanos or the gypsies that were on the Betis River that traveled in and out and up and down Spain and throughout Andalusia. It's in, unclear whether they entered in the port of Barcelona or the oldest port in Europe, which is Cadiz, which would probably make more sense because that's part of Andalusia. Um, they are one of the groups of people that have influenced the art of flamenco. 
The other three groups are the Jewish Sephardic people in Southern Spain that were, that during the Franco regime later in, you know, in, I don't even remember the exact dates, but, you know, in, in the 20th century that were actually um, in hiding with the gypsy people up in the hills. I and, didn't and know Spain. that. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a very strong Sephardic um, influence on flamenco. A lot of the different um, modes of the 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 keys of the song. I'm not a musician. I'm a dancer. So if I have to say something, I'm going to apologize in advance. That's you know my lingo may be off. But a lot of the song forms, the melodies of flamenco and of the traditional Sephardic songs they have a very strong relationship. Just as we hear a lot of times people hear say, they'll say, oh, I can hear the Moorish influence. The Moors were also very influential because they were of course in Southern Spain for so many years. Um, that Alhambra, Granada, that was a Moorish kingdom and empire. So it's, there's the gypsy, the Moors, the Jewish, and the Spanish Catholic, the Spanish, the non-gypsy people in Southern Spain have contributed endlessly to the evolution and what we see as flamenco nowadays on stage. Um, there are lots of different subgenres of flamenco dance styles and song styles, whether it's Escuela Sevillana, if it's Escuela Madrileña, um, and then even within the Andalusian schools, you can see a difference between the style of movement that comes from, for example, from Jerez, where my co-director and partner is from, um, immense, like a difference like day and night, seeing the dancers that come from Seville, the dancers that come from Cordoba, just as the singers and the guitarists, the different influences that they've had from the different figures that come from those regions or those provinces within the region of Andalusia where flamenco comes from, it's very rich in style. And so, you know, getting back to those four groups of people, the Moors, the Gypsy, the Jews, and the Spanish Catholic, um, or that's always referred to within flamencology, los católicos, the Spanish, the Spanish Catholic, or the Spanish folk, the Spanish common folk. Those are the four groups of people that have influenced and shaped what we know as the art of flamenco today. Um, and again, I'd, I'd like to start breaking those barriers of just always relying on the gypsy, the gypsy, the gypsy, um, I'm not going to say school, but the gypsy style of flamenco is something that's very preserved and it's very sacred and it's very kept within the gypsy people. There's, there's socially, politically, there's, you know, the gypsy people, they, they keep to themselves. They're not always open to accepting non-gypsy people within the art form. So that's something that's important to recognize is that, um, that flamenco has evolved thanks to the four different groups of people and has moved forward and, and is an art form that's found nowadays in all parts of the world, which is beautiful because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it here today. Right. And uh, here in Santa Fe, um, flamenco is part of the fabric of this community. And it's included also in Albuquerque, just in New Mexico in general. And we'll talk about where the tendrils of flamenco goes. But let's start with your own love and interest in flamenco. How, how did you get exposed to it and get interested in it? And not just as a dancer, but as an advocate, like as a carrier of the cultural art form. 
how did it all begin? Well, you know, I, I grew up dancing. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from the middle of the cornfields, nowhere in <laughs> Illinois. Love my people, love my hometown, love my area. Um, but the area that I come from was very rich because it was right off the Mississippi River of Mississippi Delta Blues, um, lots of bluegrass music. Um, we had the boats that would come up the Mississippi. So we had um, Dixieland Jazz. And as far as dance, a standpoint of dance in my area, we had, since we're two hours southwest of Chicago, had a lot of great young dancers that were, you know, paying their dues in the city. For me, the city of Chicago, the second city, and there's nothing second about it. I love New York and we'll be in New York next week for a conference, but I love me some Chicago. Um, and the, uh, we had, we were, we were really blessed with having a lot of young and emerging dance artists that would look for workshops and classes on the weekends and to fill up their agendas at the same time, besides working professionally in Chicago and Chicago's um, Chicago's dance scene at that time when I was growing up was very rich in tap and jazz, uh, the Giordano School. And so, um, you know, second uh, Hubbard Street dance. So there's was a lot of wonderful dance. And I grew up studying tap and jazz. I always studied classical ballet, even though I've never been on point. I'm not a ballet dancer, but was was really um, had studied from wonderful professionals that had insisted that you needed a strong classical base besides having other styles of dance in your back pocket and experience. So basically I grew up tapping and um, doing jazz. And then when I was a teen, I was introduced to modern dance and started to study under one of, um, one of Bill Evans' dance company members, Bill Evans was at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque for years and uh, was actually scouted by Bill in a sense. And he really insisted, you should come to the University of New Mexico because at that time they had a dance, they have a dance program, but at that time they had a scholarship for Hispanic dancers. Um, so I auditioned and applied, got in, received um, support from, from that fund, as well as the Friends of Dance Scholarship Fund, and came to Albuquerque not knowing anyone when I was 18, finished high school and said, all right, I'm going to go and dance. Thought I was going to pursue modern dance and stumbled upon flamenco. And when I saw the art form and when I heard the live guitar and the lament of the song um, and heard the rhythm, I was, I automatically just became obsessed with, okay, I, I, this is, that is, I, I knew the moment that I saw and heard it, that, that, that was mine. That was my calling. I knew how to use my feet from the top. Obviously I recognized that Flamenco was a different school, was a different set of vocabulary of movement and, and um, just a whole, a whole study in itself. And I began to apply myself in my first year of dance studies at the University of New Mexico. And before the third mid, my third year, Maria Benitez had scouted me and had contacted me, had been for, I guess, for, um, almost two years, had a scout that was already eyeing me. And when they felt the time was right, they reached out to me and said, okay, 
we want you to come and audition. Initially, what I um, understood was that I was auditioning for her second company, which was an educational project that she had founded here with other local dance artists. And so I came up to Santa Fe one day thinking that I was auditioning for the second company. And at the end of the audition, which by the way, in that audition was, it was so memorable. Um, it was Maria, her late husband, Cecilio Benitez, which we also have to pay respects to, who was her co-director. And Meryl Brockway, who was a PBS producer who produced Dance in America with all the great dance forms or dance artists. Um, he was one of her board of directors and I auditioned for them. And little did I know, at the end of the audition, she asked me to actually join her company, besides the second company, and perform at one of her most emblematic performances, which was the Boston Pops performance at Evening on the Pops on PBS. So that was my How old were you? How old were you then? I was 19 years old. Um, and, you know, I want to say when the thing about flamenco that's so interesting for anybody who hasn't seen a show, it blends a fusion of rhythm and cadence and it sort of it goes up and then it's furious and then it sort of comes down and then there are these pauses in between and there's so much I guess I want to say nuance to the art form so how were you able to feel into that passion and make it your own because to get that noticed you had to have felt it in your blood Absolutely. Thank you for recognizing those nuance. It's so important. And a lot of the young dancers that I mentor with our company, it's the first thing that we all work with, you know, as, as foreigners, as strange as it may sound, we're always so taken by that fire and passion and that intensity. But flamenco is actually it's an array of different sensations and emotions and the subtlety is so important. It that is. It's so delicious. It's it so really tasty. Is. It's so satisfying. And we get taken so many times within our training, which is, is it's, I don't know, it's natural. It just happens, but that we're always working. Okay. I have to work on my fast sport work. I have to get I have to work on that intensity. I have to work on the dramatism when we realize that we really need that balance. Um, you know, I was drawn into it immediately. And honestly, the first year of my training, I had major injuries because I was not that I was training improperly, but the amount of hours per day that I was training was not a healthy balance for my body. Um, in dance, we have to work smarter, not harder. We have to know kinesiology. We have to know the signs of movement. And we have to train under credited professionals that know how to train. Uh, Flamenco is in a very dangerous place nowadays because, you know, YouTube is great. Marketing. I could never take a class on YouTube. No way. First of all, you have no rhythm and I suck. Like I would be, I don't want to come and take a class with you, but I am embarrassed because I, I'm not a dancer. But you know what? It's so easy nowadays for anyone to call themselves a professional. And, and unfortunately, I know that it happens in other art forms and other disciplines, but it's, you know, it is, it's, it's easy to get taken by the dance form. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to try and absorb any and everywhere I can absorb. And unfortunately, 
you know, I recognized that the injuries weren't normal and I was able to take care of myself and heal myself and continue dancing without any taking any time off. And my biggest discoveries when I started working with Marty Benitez, I had realized that I had wonderful dance training, but that I had learned flamenco in a very Americanized way and that I needed when I was working with, I was, you know, the only American in a company of Spaniards and I was the new kid on the block and I had realized, oh my goodness, I have a lot of areas that I need to fill in those blanks. And at that time, Cecilio Benitez had just insisted, you need to spend time in Spain and you need to learn flamenco in Spain. And so that's what I did. Um, I actually finished my dance studies abroad in Seville at the University of Seville on exchange and was, you know, had a semester of excellent studies because I studied the geography of the Mediterranean to become better prepared to understand the whole area where flamenco comes from. I studied sociology of Spain so I could better understand the people, the customs, and the tradition. Um, and obviously I was studying the Spanish language, which is important. And from there, I continued to work with Maria Benitez and in between, in between contracts with her, I would return to Spain. And then it just so happened that I had work in Spain and I was there, I was established for almost 14 years. I worked in conservatories on the East Coast training dancers. I have a number of dancers that are now professionals and I'm so incredibly proud to say that they're, they recognize their studies that they had with me and I still keep in touch with all of them. They're still my niñas, son mis niñas, they're my girls, even though they're professionals and they're, some of them have, you know, have different levels of the profession, but they're all working in Spain. Um, I also worked together with the government in on the east coast of Spain in Castellón and Valencia founded a flamenco festival. Uh, it was in the annual budget for 10 years. It's no longer existed after the pandemic, it was wiped out. I hope that they're able to pick it up again. And then I also worked for the ministry, basically the board of education in Spain, the Ministerio de Educación y Cultura, and I created curriculum that was integrated into K through 12 music education and physical education. Um, so my time in Spain, as I continued to, I basically, when I relocated to Spain permanently over those 14 years, um, I went back to ground zero and learned flamenco from zero. I went to beginner level classes while I was still working as a dance educator and a performer. Um, I, I, I went back and, and I not only did I pay my dues as a dancer because I also performed as a professional with artists there, but I also decided and felt that it was really important that I learned flamenco from ground zero, how it's taught there to be able to combine the positive parts of my flamenco dance training here in Spain compared with how it's taught and how you learn flamenco because it's really important to recognize flamenco is a traditional dance form. That's where sometimes in foreign lands, things get lost. You can't just put on a train dress when you decide that you're ready to. You put on a train dress or you put on a fan or you use a fan or you'd use you explore certain choreographies 
that are choreographed by a maestro, when that maestro offers you that opportunity, that's the beauty of the tradition of paying your dues, working hard and, and progressing and learning how things are done. It sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's the history, it's the confluence of culture, it's the preservation, it's the historical significance, it's the beauty of the movement, it's the nuance, it's the luxury of that gorgeous music and guitar going and it's so alive and in real time and everything's coming together in those moments. How do you how do you maintain that level of passion and excitement and performance excellence after all these years? How does it all come together? Because when I was there watching you, I felt the joy. I felt the joy. I watched your face. I watched what was going on and the joy was there. Whether you were dancing or you were on the side, like how do you keep that? You know, it's for me, it's not any particular, I feel like I don't have to make any type of effort. I love what I do. I love what I do. And I wouldn't change it for the world. It's difficult. It can be frustrating. It's a lot of work, but anything that's well worth your time in this lifetime is going to be a lot of work. Um, and just that I can share my life with my co-director, my partner, my husband, the father of my child, that in itself is just such an amazing experience being able to have a life where you do what you love and all of your time is dedicated to that. I mean, there are days when I rehearse more hours than I sleep at night and those are the best days of my life. I mean, so <laughs> I bet you hurt. Yeah, I'm I'm no spring chicken. My my body, my instrument is maturing and I'm, you know, I have to find ways to work with with how I use my movement, the dynamics, but in itself, it's not it's not a job for me to look for how do I keep the spark or how do I, you know, how do I keep that light, that light really bright and all of that energy? I love what I do. I, 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 you know, it's to me, and especially after having a shutdown of year of over a year, we were shut down. Our venue was shut down. We did a lot of virtual work um, and being back and in person and live, I just, I just want to enjoy every moment. And I am. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I have an audience in front of me. People are so incredibly supportive since since the reopening of the world. People want to see live performance. They they want to live the journey and the experience of where you're going to take them emotionally on stage. So it's for me, it's it's not work. I mean, it's it's um I'll tell you this. It's more effort for me to try and find how to rest myself better in my downtime than it is when I'm when I've got the automatic pilot button on. And how is it to be married to somebody who shares the same 
awareness and perspective and love for something you love so much, because I can't imagine, you know, I, I can't imagine that you could be married to somebody who's doing something out in the world that isn't as magical and passionate because you, you would, because the level of that intensity. So what is it like to share that with somebody who gets it like you do? Well, you know, it, it can be difficult at times because as you know, most flamenco dancers, we have a lot of character. <laughs> we have a lot of personality. So sometimes that strong person, having two strong personalities together can be an intense ride. Um, but, you know, as corny as and cliche as it may sound, we live our passion. I mean, we, we, I have, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have a partner that I fell madly in love with and he fell madly in love with me. We decided to have a family. We have a beautiful son and we have, um, you know, a healthy family that we are all involved in the work that we do. And, um, you know, it's sometimes rehearsals can get intense because, because of the love and passion that we have for what we do. We want things to be done the best, the, you know, the most, uh, with the highest quality possible. So, I mean, it gets intense, but having a person sharing your life with someone that understands what you do and fully supports vice versa that, okay, you know, he's in New York right now. And we have these conversations after he's finished with his rehearsals and just being able to be there for him, for example, to listen and support, not necessarily give my two cents back, but just to be there for someone and understand their situation and, and be able to learn from it as well. It's so important to learn. It is so important to learn. It's, it's very, it's an eye opener to work so many times with a lot of young dancers that are just emerging and just getting into the profession and the sector and how you have to remind them, this is a learning process. You never finish learning. And just because you're starting to work as a professional doesn't mean that you have arrived. Ya llegado. I'm here. No, no, no. That's just the beginning. Well, and he's an amazing dancer too. Like he has all the passion and fury. And I noticed that when he was dancing, you were watching him and you can still marvel at what an incredible performer. And I want to say athlete. I mean, it's not really, that's not the word I want, but like uh, the skill level is at such a high level. And I could see you each appreciating each other when you each were dancing Absolutely. You know, it's funny because um, kinesiology recognizes that or states that within the science of movement and muscles and bones in space, that dance really is not, um, it's not a cardiovascular type of exercise. <laughs> Which I think that they honestly need to reconsider you and observe. Before. <laughs> our heart rate, I don't know what our heart rate is. Oh, I, I don't totally to analyze that. it, but everyone that comes there, like, yeah, it's, I mean, dance, it is. And also, ballet dancers, classical ballet dancers have scientifically, they've been proven to be more physically fit than an American football player. 
we are athletes, we're artists, but I, I, and I don't find that like, I'm not offended or that I, that I think that that's a compliment. I mean, that's to, to, to be a professional athlete or to have that athletic skill as a talent and as art, art in itself. I mean, yeah. I was raised by my father played basketball and my brother was a basketball player. My mother even played basketball. I love basketball and I can recognize that, you know, Kobe Bryant, his movement was artistic. He had stylization. Magic Johnson did too. Can you tell I'm a Lakers fan? Um, and you see, but you see within, uh, for me, all types of movement are art because each person, even someone walking down the street, they have their own rhythm. They have their own dynamic. They have their own attitude. They have their timing, whether it's a slow walk, a fast walk. They have their kinesthetic reach. Is it a long stride? Is it a short staccato type of what you know everything all movement to me is art and is beautiful yeah and I love that um the dynamic so speaking of the dynamic what what is it when there are those claps in between the notes that the person on the side is working in concert with the person who's singing and with the guitar player, how is that all learned and choreographed? Because I always was sitting and watching in fascination, when do the claps come in and they're sort of soft and then they're sort of loud. Like how do you learn all the pieces of what's going on in this very fast and furious and beautiful moment of dance and music and song with that nuance in between? Absolutely. So from a dance point of view, when you are learning, this is where the tradition, the traditional curriculum is really important to recognize. When you learn a choreography, first and foremost, there's a specific order that you're supposed to learn flamenco in or that it's taught in in Spain, whether you're in a conservatory or in a neighborhood academy. Um, flamenco is very specific in the order so that you learn the rhythms in an order that are chronological and that are also logical so that they build upon each other. Then your, your knowledge of how to articulate them here with your palmas and your hand clapping, that will help you embody and encase the movements and the rhythm in your coordination and in your footwork and in your movement so that you can apply that to the traditional choreographies. And then once you learn a specific amount of standard material, usually you are invited to join what's called a cuadro flamenco, which is the most traditional basic format of flamenco where you have the singer, the guitar, the dance, and from there you practice, for lack of better terms, the standard material to the traditional material that you have learned from a maestro that has a standard traditional format with the classical vocabulary of movement of flamenco. Now, usually you learn in cuadro format, whether you are a singer, a guitarist, or a dancer. Those are your first, after you've learned your ABCs, that should be your first experience in performance. From there, that can take a lifetime. There are some people that dance in tablao and cuadro form for their whole lifetime. And it's, it's beautiful. Um, from there, after you have a certain amount of cuadro, experience and in the tablaos, 
that's usually where you're invited to perform with companies where you're scouted for companies. Um, and from there, usually what is recognized, for example, is that you dance in what's called cuerpo de baile, which is as a group dancer before you're a soloist. So then you learn the protocol of how to work in a company format. And then, then there's the different progression and stepping up the ladder of flamenco in different levels. Usually you, it's, 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 it's tradition usually that you go through first cuerpo de baile, then from there, that cuerpo de baile can be toned down to doing duets or trios with other dancers to continue to to continue your your evolution as a performer to recognize your spatial awareness and to preserve because even within flamenco for example dancing in partners male and female there's a whole school there's a whole yeah, school I can imagine. and a ton of taboo there as well so from there then after after that has been completed if you will then you're invited to be a soloist. And nowadays we see people that just put themselves in soloist positions. And it's really, it's really not to be negative, but it's really doing flamenco harm. It really is. Um, it's a traditional art form. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful experience to go through all of those levels. And I love like going down to the plaza in the summer. I've been there a few times where you have the new children that are that come out and perform and you're giving them performance exposure and experience of sort of practicing what they know in front of a crowd and receiving that energy in return. And I don't know why it warms my heart so much to see these little performers with their little dresses and their little, you know, and they're so sweet, but they're so dedicated. And to me, it felt like the future of flamenco and how lucky they are to be learning from somebody like you and your husband who cares so much about the history and cultural preservation that all of that comes together. You know, I felt it and, and saw it even in these young these young kids that you're really doing a service to preserve this. How many um, schools, give or take, are around the country that still teach the authentic traditional method of flamenco that you know of? Um, that's a hard one because with the new generation of artists that are here in the United States, I don't know of any besides, and not to say that we're the only- no, that's okay. Yeah. Um, but we're the, from my, from my knowledge, we're the only program that offers the actual traditional curriculum in the order how it's taught in Spain. There what? are other programs that have other approaches no. that are very different. Um, the only other center um, that has implied the same curriculum is the Center for Flamenco Arts in New York City because I created their curriculum um, over the past year, two years and a, and a program that they have been doing uh, with a, a colleague and friend of mine. And they have been, um, they have used our virtual catalog of 72 
videos of this mentioned curriculum that you oh. study in Spain. Yeah. And their dancers have, they go through that curriculum and do a series of in-person workshops to kind of review some of those same ideas. And then from there, they audition for scholarships to spend time in Spain. Um, we have a different type of approach, whereas we have the in-class person, in-person classes for our children here in Santa Fe, which is free of cost outreach programming. Some of the programming is on site at our venue. Other, we visit other schools during the school year, during their PE periods. And then they, um, they study the same curriculum. And from there, we also have partnerships in Texas and in Washington, DC, where our virtual content is live. We partner with Musical Bridges Around the World in San Antonio, Texas. Last year, we reached some 9,000 students in San Antonio, Austin, and West Texas throughout the different public schooling that did our, that articulated our virtual content. And then in Washington, D.C., we partner with Gala Hispanic Theater, where we headlined their Flamenco Festival in Washington, D.C., in um, October of 2022, and they are also uh, promoting our 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 virtual content. So that's awesome. I mean, and I think students get such a range of history and culture and art, and so much in in what you're teaching. Since I don't speak Spanish, what does what are the songs? talk about what is the music about because like with the hawaiian dance the hula as a cultural art form they're telling stories with their hands and so i wondered between the dance and the music what are the stories and, and the songs related to in the dance for flamenco so the dance in general is a non-narrative dance form we're not telling a story with our hands we don't have for example um two years ago i or right before the shutdown i was I was one of the featured artists at the international Com um, dance conference for women at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I got to spend time with a Kazakh dancer and she's from, from India, beautiful dancer from, she lives in Boston now. And we were talking about flamenco and about the Kazakh dance form. And she was saying that there were 400 different hand movements that our narrative so that when they tell stories with their movement that each dancer has to know the 400 basic hand movements plus the variants which I was blown away um flamenco flamenco is non-narrative um what we do do and I'll get to the cante to the singing in just a moment but the, the relationship between the, the the dance interpreting the the song because the song is the main um, pillar of our structure, whether it's musically or, or dance-tistically. So the song was the first that was apparent in flamenco history. From there, the movement and the guitar took their forms, imitating the melodies and the rhythmical structure and, and expression of the song and of the vocals. So we are if you will, exporting, if you will, or in, I don't want to say interpreting because we're not narratively interpreting 
their vocals, but we we express our movements with the dynamic and the Matisse, the different types of texture of, of the vocals with our movement, with our extremities, with our center of our body, with our torso um, and with the footwork. So the song in itself, the different song styles, um, they come from different parts of Spain and flamencologists state that the different songs and the different palos, P-A-L-O-S, Apollo is a flamenco song or dance, express all of the different types of human emotion. So for example, in our holiday production, Antonio was um, performing a solea. And a solea is a mispronunciation in Andalusian language, or they call it dialect. I don't, I don't know that it really is a dialect, but the Andalusian pronunciation of soledad, which means solemnness, um, loneliness. So his, his solo expressed those type of emotion within his, that type of sentiment within his movement. For example, his Bessie Award, which I have to announce, the only New Mexican that's ever been recognized as a New York City Bessie artist for his outstanding performance at the Joyce Theater. When he was recognized for that uh, performance, he was dancing an alegrías. And the word alegría in Spanish means joy or happiness. So that, that expresses those type, that dance and song expresses those type of sentiment. Um, and he plays around with different types of dynamics when he's dancing, for example, the alegría should have a very different feel opposed to his solea. Um, there are other song styles, for example, the alegrías is, is from Cádiz, which we mentioned before is the oldest port in Spain. There's a whole family of songs that are similar to alegrías. They're actually called Cantinas de Cádiz. So there's different groups of different types of songs that range between rhythms of threes three beat songs and four beat songs. That's in a very rude type of manner of explaining it, but in a nutshell, your rhythms in flamenco are either in threes or fours. Sometimes those threes are full on 12 beat phrases that mark the 12, the three, the six, the eight, the 10, or the 12, the three, the seven, eight, 10. Um, but the style and the school that Entre Flamenco works within is more of a Jerezano school because our artistic director and founder, Antonio, is from Jerez. And they rely on threes and sixes rather than full on 12 beat rhythms. And anyone that's flamenco related will say, yes, that's the magic of Jerez. Do you find the talent? How do you find, because I was thinking about it between the dancers and the guitar players and the singers, they're such very specific talents and they're very well trained. How do you find, and it's such a small pool, I'm sure, of people at the level. So how do you find your talent? Um, you know what? Honestly, Antonio makes an annual visit to Spain to scout artists in the Tablaos. He goes to the Tablaos in Madrid and Seville to see if there's any new talent. But really, it is a tight-knit circle of high-end artists that have exquisite experience. And the experience... The professional and artistic experience is important, but also protocol. Artists that have knowledge of etiquette and protocol. There's a protocol of flamenco. It's not the same as it's not the same dance etiquette as classical ballet or other dance styles. Um, and I think that that's one area where that's what really makes the difference of 
a dancer, for example, a foreign dancer, and I speak from experience of really being able to integrate yourself into the profession is because you have spent endless time in Spain and you know the protocol and you know the culture. Lot of dancers that have talent that are hardworking dancers and that you can see it, but they don't spend time in Spain and going for a month or two for a year is not going to cut it. Yeah, it's, no, I can see it's, it's, it's a crude reality. Um, but it's it's a lot the artists that we work with one a lot of times they're artists that we have worked with formerly in Spain or with other companies, so we're we're we've already been exposed to them. Um, and then for example, the, or I love to give this example, the guitarist that has been working with us for the past year, who will be continuing on with us during 2023, Juan Jose Alba. We actually discovered him during the shutdown on television because he was a finalist in Spain's version of The Voice. He's amazing. I mean, he <laughs> was amazing. He is absolutely above and beyond. I mean, he's like from another planet. Being able to play the guitar at the level that he does and his musical direction in Spain, his credentials are very impressive for how young he is. And his vocals being, I mean, being, let's be honest, playing the flamenco guitar is is supposedly within the guitar world. And again, I'm not a guitarist, I'm not a musician, but within the guitar world is supposed to be one of the most difficult guitar instruments because they don't play with a pick, they play with their fingers, um, with all five fingers of their, the different types of um, hand techniques. But being able to play the guitar is so incredibly difficult in flamenco. Being able to sing in, in, in flamenco is so incredibly difficult. And he does both. And then the other singer that was with us during the holiday season that you experienced, Trini de la Isla is one of one of Spain's best singers for dancers. He, we had to throw elbows to to get him here. Fighting with other companies of dates of availability. And for 2023, same thing. We're still throwing elbows. Um, But we're, we're super, super, super privileged to have these individuals and all of the individuals next year for 2023, we have nine different artists that are on our artist visa that we bring over from Spain. So we will have an array for as a preview for 2023 of the same artists that everyone enjoyed during the 2023 year, I'm sorry, 2022 year, plus some additional new faces that I think everyone will really love. But we do scout and we do rely on word of mouth. It is a tight tight net network of artists in Spain that we do communicate with. And I think it's also important to recognize that there are also, in, in the United States, there's only three recognized registered dance companies that specialize in flamenco. One is Noche Flamenca, which Antonio is the soloist and guest artist to in New York right now. There's Entre Flamenco, who is us. There also is another company in New York that we've worked with a lot, which is Flamenco Vivo, which I've worked with a lot. Um, and then there's there's some other there's some other wonderful projects, theatrical, flamenco, uh, I forget the exact name in San Francisco. There's also another company in, you know, in Minneapolis. There's movement in Albuquerque, obviously. Um, but registered companies that are at a level that only showcase Spaniards, there's only three of us here in the United States. Um, so it's also it's also a tight-knit network. And then also my partner, Antonio, he is called upon often to scout young dancers. 
And he has sent dancers to these others, to these other companies to do projects. So, I mean, we're, we're all about, we're all about the positivity and the preservation of flamenco from Spain, how it's done in Spain and practicing all of the protocol, all the etiquette, all the tradition. We're going to do our darndest to keep it moving forward, how it moves forward in Spain, but here in the United States and in Santa Fe. I am so thrilled that we've had a chance to talk about it because there's so much I didn't know. It's on my bucket list to go to Andalusia and um, experience it there. I, I definitely want to, to go and, and be part of it. It reminds me, for lack of a better analogy, it reminds me of Morocco in that it's a confluence of time and people and culture and expression and art and spices and everything sort of comes together in this beautiful sort of uh, a form of expression. And I could see how even you've affirmed that just by telling me a little bit about the history and letting people know how rich and dynamic flamenco comes from and that that history is where it starts. The origin is what matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know what, mentioning Morocco, I spent time, a very short time in Morocco, but that's a great parallel to flamenco because it's uh, when I visited there, hearing the lament in the streets, smelling the spices in, in the markets, it's just the, it's food, just, yeah. feel, feeling the people's energy. I mean, and, and there's obviously there's direct relationship uh, when you're in Southern Spain, it's, it's, it's al Andalus. It's, you know, it has that base of, of the Moorish influence. So when you're ready to plan your trip, let me know and I'll take care. Oh my God, you know it. I'm going to come knocking <laughs> on your door. I'm going to say, you tell me all there is. And I'm planning, I'm hoping for this year. I mean, I think at the end of this year, maybe we'll be, because now that everybody's coming out of COVID and I got my passport renewed and it is on my mind. So we will definitely talk about that. But thank you so much for your constant kindness and compassion and um, passion for this as something that's important and that people can learn about and be part of and um, you know, your continued efforts to educate is really super impressive. And that I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you're one of those that carries such a beautiful torch forward to help others learn and be part of that. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing it. It's honor. It's an honor to share my knowledge and my experience with anyone that wants to, to learn about it. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. So tell people that must come to Santa Fe and come to one of your shows. You do them uh, four seasons a year or three? Yes, we perform four seasons per year. We have a spring season, a summer season, a fall production, and then a holiday production. We basically operate from mid-March mid through the end of October without any pause. And then during the month of December as well, nightly. Yes. And I'm telling you, I have been to a couple of your shows and I always leave out of breath and wishing I could smoke a cigarette and I don't smoke cigarettes, <laughs> but like, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I need a cigarette after that. It's so like, woof. 
so much energy and passion and fury. And I, and I love it. And I love seeing just the joy that you exude. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Oh,